I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. Terrorism is a live threat in today's world, and one that causes immeasurable human suffering. The international community has worked to confront this threat through a patchwork of counterterrorism measures, including sanctions. But despite the legitimacy of these efforts, the measures have negative effects on the provision of humanitarian aid, harming both intended beneficiaries and humanitarian workers, bringing counterterrorism measures into tension with international humanitarian law. So today on this first episode of ICRC's new podcast, Humanity and War, I have the honor of discussing these issues with two of the most qualified yet most humble experts on the subject. So we have Naz Madirzadeh, who's the founding director of the Harvard Law School Program on International Law and Armed Conflict. And since May 2016, you've been a professor of practice at Harvard Law School. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And thank you so much, Lizzie. We're thrilled to be kicking off this new podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're also joined by Dustin Lewis, who is the research director at the program. Welcome to the show, Dustin. Thanks so much, Lizzie. I'm really happy to be here and really appreciate the invitation to discuss these issues today. Thank you so much to both of you and inaugurating the Humanitarian War podcast for us. So what we're unpacking today is really the core of an article that you wrote for the recent edition of the International Review of the Red Cross, which was an edition almost exclusively focusing on counterterrorism. And in it, you wrote an article called Humanitarian Values in a Counterterrorism Era. This article drew a lot of attention from our readers, and so we wanted to really dig a little deeper into some of the issues that you brought to the surface in that article. And so the article itself, I'll start with you, Dustin. It sets up, if I may, a pretty bleak scenario. It's essentially setting a backdrop where in situations that qualify simultaneously as armed conflicts and counterterrorism, what you're saying that we're witnessing is something of a creep of this latter counterterrorism structure that's really at direct odds with and slowly eroding humanitarian action in what seems to be a somewhat irreconcilable way. So can you explain to us why this is and what is at the core of this clash of values? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to try to take a stab at this. So in short, the There's a growing global counterterrorism architecture, which we set out in the piece. And under that architecture, support to terrorism is defined in part as seeking access to provide and actually providing life-saving assistance and protection to civilians in need, as well as to fighters or to combat or outside of combat. So in other words, it is encompassing impartial humanitarian activities. But, you know, as we look into these issues, I think it might be useful to widen the lens just a little bit. So as Naz and I understand it, the humanitarian imperative is based on certain normative commitments. So one of them is to provide in all armed conflicts, impartial aid and protection to civilians in need and fighters or to combat, irrespective of the fighters or the civilians affiliation. So when we think of impartiality in the sense of being driven by the needs of those people who are affected by the conflict, rather than by their affiliation. This impartiality serves as one of the humanitarian imperative's primary ideological justifications. Yet, on the other hand, when we look at the global counterterrorism architecture, we see that it's apparently not built on the same core normative commitments. 
And instead, it seems that the counterterrorism system requires taking sides against those who commit terrorism and their supporters. And yet, and this is a really important piece, while states cannot agree on a singular and unifying international legal definition of terrorism, this glowing global counterterrorism system rests on this notion that there is undeviating agreement, not only on the moral abhorrence of terrorism, but also on the illegitimacy of acts of terrorism and the provision of support to them. So when you take these two things in combination and you see impartial humanitarian activities through a counterterrorism lens, all of a sudden humanitarian action is conceptualized as supporting terrorism. And indeed, in its current form, the counterterrorism structure functionally rejects two of these really important linked premises underlying humanitarian activities, impartial humanitarian activities. First, the system recasts many and potentially all hum impartial humanitarian services as illegitimate support to terrorist groups. And second, it also repudiates this corollary notion that impartial humanitarian actors may offer and provide their services in relation to a terrorist group's members, irrespective of whether those members are inside uh, or engaging combat or outside of it, and especially to the civilian populations in need who are under the group's de facto control and authority. So that's what we mean by a something of a values clash that seems to be arising uh, in this area. Thank you so much. And for laying that out so clearly, I think you've really synthesized a very complex issue and laid it out in a way that really shows how we can really be at an impasse with this clash of values. And so in the last decade in particular, humanitarian agencies and donors and scholars and policy researchers have been trying to work around this impasse or this clash of values by investing significantly in efforts to address these constraints. So Naz, turning to you, in your analysis, you posit a criticism, and it's also very much directed towards yourselves, I understand, based on your own experience and your own efforts, that a lot of these efforts by humanitarians in many ways have failed so far. And what you're saying is that in large part, this failure has been an, a failure to acknowledge this fundamental values clash that Dustin just unpacked. So could you just outline for us briefly some of the efforts to date and why, in your opinion, they have missed the mark so far? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll first say, Lizzie, I think in this area in particular, uh, first, it's very difficult to engage in academic analysis and scholarly work, I think, on this question, in part because so much of what is happening is happening behind closed doors. So much of what is happening is happening in negotiations between states and humanitarian actors, behind the scenes uh, negotiations with government regulators. And I know that um, for that reason, there is a, a healthy skepticism on the part of the players and some of the stakeholders towards kind of external academic critique that isn't grounded in applied experience, that isn't grounded in awareness of all of the political sensitivities, but also the real human efforts that have been put towards preserving humanitarian space in this area. So I'll just say a word, as you noted, we are indeed very self-critical in this piece, and it's in part based on our own experience. So we have been pretty intensely involved in this issue, in the intersection between global counterterrorism norms and humanitarian action since about 2011. And in the process of researching and doing policy work on this issue, 
as international lawyers, we have worked with Security Council bodies. We've participated in global counterterrorism events, including in the lead up to major outputs like the global counterterrorism strategy, various Security Council resolutions. We've briefed member states on these issues and worked with them closely on developing their own understanding of this issue. And we have worked with all of the major humanitarian organizations that are delivering life-saving assistance around the world, including briefing them in conflict zones when they were dealing with these issues at an emergency pace, and also back at headquarters thinking through these issues strategically. So we say what we say both I think grounded in applied understanding as much as is possible for people who are not themselves humanitarian actors or civilians caught up in armed conflict. But we also say so from the perspective of watching this issue develop over more than a decade and observing from where we sit in 2022 that largely our efforts have failed to make the kinds of changes that we may have imagined early on in these debates. So with that context in mind, maybe I can say a few words about how we have tried to capture the leading efforts of the humanitarian community to the counterterrorism structure's growing influence on the humanitarian imperative. And None of these responses, in our view, take as their starting point, at least not directly, that the counterterrorism architecture and the humanitarian imperative are premised on irreconcilable values. Instead, in our view, there has been a real push to assume either that this clash does not exist at all or to suggest that even if it does, that clash can be worked around through technocratic and legalistic means. So one response is to call for a dialogue between humanitarian and counterterrorism actors. The assumption here is that if counterterrorism actors were made aware of impartial humanitarianism, then those actors would be open to changing their approach to accommodate humanitarian concerns. In practice, Rather than changing how counterterrorism systems operate, these engagements, in our experience, often result in humanitarian actors accepting counterterrorism's conceptual framework and trying to force humanitarian activities to fit into notions of exceptions or exemptions. So in this frame, a relative win by the humanitarian community, such as the adoption of a limited sectoral carve-out in a particular counterterrorism instrument, for example, one that addresses a particular terrorist group or a particular conflict, usually already reflects a compromise on impartial humanitarian values. A second approach that we see is to seek to prove the adverse impact of counterterrorism measures on impartial humanitarian activity. So this is, in a sense, a kind of turn to empiricism. In the eyes of numerous actors focused on suppressing terrorism, a lack of such evidence is too often interpreted as evidence of the absence of any adverse impact whatsoever. So essentially the argument that you might hear from individual member states saying, because you can't prove that counterterrorism measures directly causally can be linked to, for example, death as a result of inability to access food assistance 
resistance, then you cannot argue that counterterrorism measures are the reason for food insecurity in a particular conflict. Yet, as we've observed, for humanitarian actors, formulating, documenting, validating, and revealing the necessary proof entails numerous risks, data collection difficulties, and significant interpretive challenges. Perhaps the most significant risk here is that at least in certain contexts, humanitarian actors may be accumulating evidence of their own breach of counterterrorism measures in attempting to demonstrate the impact of CT on their work. And I'm happy to say more about that as our discussion continues. Third approach that we've seen is for humanitarian actors to attempt to appease counterterrorism regulators by proving that they are, quote, serious about compliance with CT measures. And I don't mean by that necessarily that it's in bad faith, but I mean that this is a kind of strategy that says if humanitarian actors can emphasize, for example, that diversion runs counter to humanitarian principles or reallocate humanitarian resources to create internal CT policies, they will somehow achieve a sort of necessary level of compliance that will then cause the CT regulators to allow humanitarian actors to do their work as they see appropriate. All the while, several of the red lines that have been defined by humanitarian actors earlier in the encounter with the CT system have been repeatedly crossed, including the vetting of beneficiaries against blacklists and agreeing to submit certain categories of prospective beneficiaries to pre-approval from donor authorities. Fourth, we see a response and one that in our view merits more attention due to its relative strategic importance, particularly today, is to ground the humanitarian imperative in the language and concepts of international humanitarian law. In practice, for example, the current approach to seeking carve-outs is largely an offshoot of IHL-related arguments. A primary impetus in invoking IHL is to link the humanitarian imperative to legal obligations relating to the provision of impartial humanitarian services for civilians in need and fighters or to combat, the protection of which in contemporary armed conflicts is deeply rooted in IHL. So you can see the appeal of this strategy. It is an appeal to obligation. It is an appeal to law as a way of saying counterterrorism and its spread can be checked by a different and arguably much stronger and more pedigreed version of international obligation, which is IHL. Yet we've come to see that framing humanitarian imperative claims primarily in IHL invites states to assess those IHL provisions and thereby the legitimacy of IHL-linked impartial humanitarian activities relative to other international legal obligations. For its part, the pull of counterterrorism obligations flowing from Security Council decisions in particular has disturbed the course of IHL protections for impartial humanitarian activities. Amid the characterization of joint armed conflict and counterterrorism contexts, international actors have increasingly staked out legal and political positions that elevate terrorism suppression concerns over respect for the part of IHL that protects the humanitarian imperative. 
from our view in this sense, IHL by itself is not well suited to address the totality of these concerns. For example, IHL does not speak with great specificity to states when they act as humanitarian donors. Indeed, even perfect compliance with IHL will not overturn the panoply of counterterrorism-based constraints on impartial humanitarian activities. In this context, references to IHL in counterterrorism instruments themselves may seem salutary on the surface in that those invocations remind states of their IHL obligations amid a welter of CT measures. Yet paradoxically, if current trajectories continue, those IHL references may ultimately serve in practice to empower technocratic security bureaucracies to see and assess IHL through a counterterrorism lens, in essence, just adding IHL as yet another aspect of counterterrorism compliance itself. So in sum, for those seeking to safeguard the humanitarian imperative, we think that a retreat into legalism invites both a category error and a strategic error. Instead, we've come to conclude that a finely calibrated balance is warranted, one that underscores the vital importance of compliance with IHL, but does not see IHL as a cure-all. Thank you, Naz. And that's Honestly, that's difficult to hear some of that, but it's a really important analysis. And it's very familiar, having worked you know, in this, in this field for, for some time now myself. Um, but it's also, it's very interesting to hear you lay it out because what I didn't capture from reading, and I'm now capturing from the conversation, the first three at least, these tactics of you know, dialogue and improving the impact and trying to appease uh, CT regulators are very similar to the tactics used by mediation or negotiation tactics almost. But the difference here, correct me if I'm wrong, is really that with negotiation and mediation, you at least have a common starting point and you're trying to reach something together with a shared understanding, whereas your whole thesis is really we don't have a common starting point. There is a fundamental clash here that we're not going to get around. We need to acknowledge in order to move forward. So I think that that's hard to hear, but really important to listen to. I am going to nonetheless push back or at least try to explore a bit the fourth path. And then more specifically, you know, there have been some positive trends. These efforts do bear fruit in some ways in recent years. And with the sanctions regime and specifically the UN Security Council Resolution 2016, providing a humanitarian carve out in Afghanistan, the US general licenses that have been generously granted to international organizations and NGOs last year and this year. So Some of my colleagues at the ICRC were feeling now some opening of the side of certain stakeholders. So Dustin, maybe I'll turn to you for this. What what is your take on these new developments? Do you think that mobilization and persuasion combined with the very pressing needs of certain contexts like what we saw in Afghanistan could lead to a certain flexibility of relevant stakeholders? Yeah, it's a really important and I think pretty complex question, uh, Lizzie. So I think 
The measures that you mentioned, so including the you know, carve-out adopted by the Security Council in Resolution 2615 a lot late last year, as well as the general licenses that have been granted within the U.S. domestic law context, I think these do provide a significant ad hoc and somewhat limited basis on which humanitarian actors, including the ICRC and others, can conduct their really important life-saving work, you know, at least in some crucial contexts. So I don't, I definitely think that these have a, a role to play here, but I think we really want to have a sense of what exactly that role is and how it relates to uh, wider issues and on a, a long, long-term horizon. So if we see it from the perspective that these measures are salutary, you know, I think that the benefits, you know, are pretty obvious. They're not only to the humanitarian actors themselves, but of course, to more importantly, to the, the populations that are in need, right? And they're able to provide those assistance and protection activities in those contexts and under those terms. But I think that, and Nas, of course, I don't want to speak for you as well, but my sense is that we're both cautious here in evaluating whether or not these kinds of developments, you know, important as they might be in and of themselves, are ultimately going to advance humanitarian commitments in a structured and enduring way, and in, in, in particular in a way that will help address what we identify as this irreconcilable values clash. Thank you. So what I'm hearing is ad hoc is what stood out for me in that response. Um, that is a success, but it's an ad hoc one where we're looking for something that's more at the core or at the foundation. So let's talk about that now. Let's talk about what is a better way forward. And I'll ask both of you to join in here. So you've suggested in your article several possible pathways that states, humanitarian bodies, and other actors seeking to safeguard impartial humanitarianism can take. Could you both kind of lay these out for us? Absolutely. So I think our sense is that in some ways, without a more strategic and political reflection on the way forward, many of these incredibly valuable efforts, including those on IHL, including those on inserting important and new language into individual Security Council resolutions, including the work of advocates on highlighting the impact of CT, increasingly will not be able to transform and change the underlying fundamental problem as we see it. So in our view, a precondition for securing greater respect for impartial humanitarian activities is to champion humanitarian values on their own terms. One way we see for doing that is to reject counterterrorism-rooted calls to suppress needs-based aid and protection in armed conflict involving terrorists. So this is this is different from a carve out, right? This is actually taking a position of saying there is there are aspects to the CT norms that are problematic and are not in line with the values of humanitarianism. Impartiality, in our view, serves as one of the humanitarian imperative's primary ideological justifications. And, and as we say in the article, this does not mean that we are saying there was a golden age when impartiality was perfectly respected and now everything is falling apart. But that's not our point. Our point is there is human value that is being expressed here and that is recognized in in the core concept of humanitarianism that needs to be marshaled in support of these arguments. The justification based on 
impartiality may help undergird political practices, enlist popular support, and provide a cornerstone for a newly configured normative and operational strategy for humanitarian actors. Advocating for impartiality may also help bring greater humanitarian consciousness to governments and civil society, and it may provide more opportunities to exert moral and intellectual leadership and forge political alliances in support of humanitarian values. This avenue's relative success or failure may turn partly on making and fulfilling commitments to engage now and in the years to come in normative contestation and political education to rebuild cultures that privilege and prioritize respect for the humanitarian imperative. And by that, we mean the political cultures across the world where individual humanitarian organizations may be based, where their donors may be rooted, and where, of course, they are seeking to provide life-saving assistance. A second possible course that we identify is to embrace ground and reconfigure security-centered concepts and frameworks in terms of strict respect for impartial humanitarian activities. Doing so might involve formulating arguments that expressly articulate and foreground the requirements and interests of civilian populations in need and fighters or to combat. In core idea of this avenue is that a special and enduring strength of the humanitarian imperative is that it contributes to a human dignity-centered notion of security by embodying values, attitudes, and practices that aid and protect people in need amid the deprivation and immiseration of armed conflict. So in our view, this would be a very different approach from arguing that the humanitarian imperative is hand in hand with or shares the same values as counterterrorism. Rather, it would be a reframing of the idea of security itself. Yeah, no, it's, I think, you know, as we mentioned in the article, part of the question here is how much these pathways forward overlap and how much of them are distinct. And I, my sense is that most of these are pretty, have a pretty strong sense of overlap, but you could also make them relatively distinguishable. But, you know, on this third avenue, Similarly to the to those first two, I do think there's some measure of potential overlap here, which is that, you know, there's a potential to just confront and contest the constraints that are being posed on impartial humanitarian activities from these counterterrorism rationales head on. So a starting point here may be that contemporary interpretations of terrorism are inseparable from debates as to its existence in the first place, as I was mentioning earlier. You know, and so advocating for the humanitarian imperative may entail from this perspective, trying to form and express positions, including in certain concrete cases that the prescribed conduct does not meet a legitimate definition of terrorism. And you know, more fundamentally, it might also involve arguing that certain definitions of terrorist conduct are illegitimate because they precisely sweep in not only justifiable, but maybe even morally required activities, including the provision of impartial humanitarian services. So. You know, my sense is that we're not suggesting here a wholesale withdrawal of the existing responses, but instead calling for clear-eyed acknowledgement of these irreconcilable values and this type of political and strategic reflection you're mentioning on how to address that tension with a view to safeguarding impartial humanitarianism in relation to these counterterrorism contexts and the, the wider counterterrorism architecture. 
Absolutely. And if I may, it's also, you know, what this is all leading back to is essentially a principled humanitarian approach, but an unapologetic one. Is, is that what I'm hearing here? Yes, I think an unapologetic one and perhaps also one that recognizes humanitarian actors are not only in conversation with donors, they are not only in quiet uh, negotiation with regulators, they also speak to the public. They also have the capacity to articulate to political collectives what we owe one another when people are suffering, when people are starving, when people are in harm's way. I mean, to me, that is the fundamental political power of humanitarian organizations. We don't tend to talk about it this way for for obvious and important reasons. And we are not suggesting a, a foray into partisan politics in domestic constituencies around the world. But we do think that it may be that this is also a moment for re-articulating and re-energizing to the public, uh, to political collectives around the world, why we have a humanitarian imperative that mobilizes uh, people around the world to help one another. I really love the spirit with which you speak, because I feel like sometimes there is this, in my previous life in, in human rights and now in humanitarian as well, there is this tendency for us to always try to find how do we align our interests and both get what we want out of this discussion. And I really applaud you know, this very courageous take is like, no, we're doing this because this is the right thing to do. We're going back to the principle of humanity and we're starting from there and we're, we're moving forward. And I think that in that messaging, it would be important also to be able to link this back to the concrete effects of what you're proposing. So can you lay that out really just, you know, an abstract or hypothetical scenario that this were to be put into motion and how a successful proposal that you would put forward would actually trickle down to improved humanitarian action and ultimately people who are affected by conflict and violence? Sure. So maybe I'll, I'll take a first attempt at that and then and then hand over to you, Dustin. So I think one aspect of this story that is that can be missed if you are only reading texts, if you are only reading Security Council resolutions and the global counterterrorism strategy and the statements of donors and governments, is the fact that there, in my view, is a tremendous amount of concern and contestation behind the scenes already. My sense is that there are many states that are deeply troubled by the ways in which the counterterrorism architecture has expanded, by the ways in which the counterterrorism bureaucracy is overseeing counterterrorism norms, and in particular, by the impact on humanitarian action. And so I think one potential practical effect here of what we are suggesting is that if humanitarian actors were to couple some of the existing strategies with a more political and holistic approach to humanitarian values vis-a-vis some states that they know to be deeply concerned about these issues, it may empower, in some ways even inspire, if I can use that word, those states 
to take on a more robust approach to this issue in the various counterterrorism fora that they are involved in around the world, as well as in their own domestic legal systems. It's important to say here, without getting into any specifics, that many, in my experience, many actors at different levels from top high-level officials, security council, bureaucrats, government regulators, and humanitarian actors, there is a real concern about the sensitivities of this issue. There is a real concern about being perceived as not taking counterterrorism seriously. There is a real concern about being perceived as somehow being pro-terrorist. And I wonder if in some ways, two decades into this situation, it may be time to consider the possibility that there are some states that have a bit more political courage than we may be giving them credit for. Excellent. Dustin, do you have anything to add to that? You know, trying to, I think, it's thinking through what the actual practical effects could be. They, you know, ideally, the hope is that there would be, you know, fewer wars in war, there'd be less suffering, and then you're able to end the wars in ways that have more enduring peace. Well, my goodness, of course, that's what I think everybody's goals are here. Um, but I think in terms of the practical reality here, like taking Nas's cue here, of like really trying to seize the potential for certain states that might be in a position to adopt particularly robust approaches to preserving and safeguarding humanitarian action would be to really call on them not only to, you know, I think the most basic approach would be to respect and ensure respect for IHL. I think that has to be the starting point, but that just cannot be the ending point, right? So to make that also very concrete in the different forums where that can take place and to monitor the conduct that matters in this area, whether it's conduct of other states, whether it's conduct of UN organs, whether it's conduct of non-state actors, and to articulate and elaborate views and then adopt those in donor policies, in legal interpretations, and in states, you know, having states actually really commit to certain values so that it has those trickle-down effects to, you know, not allow, provide the framework so that if there are wars, they will diminish the suffering and be able to end in ways that really promote enduring pieces. I think this is what we're all hoping for. And I think there is, in my view, very strong reason to think that the ideological justifications underlying the humanitarian imperative hold a much higher place when we're thinking about what it means to be addressing the, you know, 100 or more situations of armed conflict that are occurring today. Thank you for that. And I just want to latch on to you mentioned states several times in this scenario that you're laying out. And I think the two of you would be the first to acknowledge that these changes cannot come solely from humanitarian organizations or even counterterrorism bodies, but they have to be made primarily to and through states. So in your experience, what are the incentives and strategies that you think could work or that you've seen work? And have you seen any success to this end? take a a first attempt at that. Yeah. So I think we do take a position that this debate and the future of this issue needs to be much more focused on member states, which is not to in any way undermine the significance of principled humanitarian organizations, civil society groups, um, and 
various bodies of the United Nations uh, and their staff, but rather to really emphasize in the spirit of what we're calling for, that it, it is ultimately the political actors here whose responsibilities and whose approaches to these issues will shape the future of the relationship between counterterrorism and humanitarian action. So in terms of possible incentives and strategies, after the opinion note that we're discussing here, HLS PLAC uh, published a report co-authored with our colleague Radhika Kapoor exploring how states could advance humanitarian commitments in connection with countering terrorism. We focused especially on states' relationship with the Security Council, and the research underlying that report documented how states spend tens of billions of dollars each year to help implement humanitarian programs in conflicts around the world. In a way, kind of reminding ourselves just how significant the humanitarian industry, if you will, is and how deep it's the roots of humanitarian diplomacy are in relationships between states around the world. Yet in practice, counterterrorism objectives increasingly seem to be prevailing over humanitarian concerns, often resulting in devastating effects for civilian populations in need of aid and protection. The evidence suggests that among other factors, confusion and misapprehension about the power and authority of states relative to the Security Council to set policy preferences and configure legal obligations contribute significantly to this trajectory. So one strategy that we have been exploring in our research is how can we help states to reflect upon their own power, their own capacity to shape their policy preferences on this issue, as opposed to having this sense that the Security Council is determining for each state around the world their approach to the relationship between their commitments to counterterrorism and their commitments to the humanitarian imperative. Thank you for that. And then I do just want to end with one very open question to the two of you, just, just to give you the opportunity to discuss anything that perhaps we did not address during this conversation. I realize that I'm in a very privileged position to be sitting on a cumulative decades of experience on this. So is there anything that you would like to talk about or tell our listeners that we didn't go over yet today? So one thing, and maybe I just jump in really quickly here um, and then turn it over to, for you, Naz, to, to round us out. But in, and in the spirit of this conversation here, my sense is, you know, this is all not doom and gloom. There's a real potential for having to be able to advance the humanitarian imperative. You know, there's nothing that's foreordained about how this is going, these sets of issues are going to look in five years and 10 years and 15 years. It's up to those of us concerned about how we all relate to each other when it comes to the deprivations of war to decide how to adopt these positions. And I do think that there's real potential value here to um, bring in concrete ways opportunities, especially to states, but as Naz was mentioning to others, to formulate and instantiate their values, their policy commitments, and their legal positions in this area to, with you know, the real idea of holding the pride of place in a foundational way for the humanitarian imperative. And I think that's something that shouldn't be shied away from and can be really embraced with a lot of gusto and a lot of verve because it, it really matters. 
Thank you, Dustin. It's important to bring us back to a hopeful note that this actually is in our control and there is a solution that we can build towards. Naz, do you have anything to add to this or another point? Yeah, I think perhaps I was reflecting while Dustin was talking that, so what is the role of people who think about law here, right? What is the role of those who see themselves, the role that they play in this process, certainly not the most important one, is to reflect on international law, interpretation of law, legal obligations. And and I think here too is not doom and gloom. When we say the law will not save us, the law is not the only solution by itself. It is not the solution to this problem. That is by no means meant to paralyze lawyers or to give the impression that that therefore law is sort of a hopeless endeavor that needs to be set aside. Um, certainly, if nothing else, that would... I think instead, it is to suggest that it is important to reflect on the ways in which speaking the language of law, speaking the language of obligation can shift and can alter depending on the circumstances and still have integrity and still be coherent. So there are times when a extremely formalist doctrinal approach to international humanitarian law might be the right tactic for achieving particular outcomes. And certainly we have observed able and skilled international lawyers do this in the CT context. And we ourselves have have attempted to articulate such highly formalist positions. But there may be other moments when the the language of law and the values underlying law are, are more operatic, if I can kind of use that term, when they may provide an opportunity for those who have expertise in law to urge their organizations, uh, the political communities with which they collaborate to emphasize the values that underlie the law, the values that animate the law, and to use that as an, an empowering and an ennobling way of moving out of the situation we find ourselves in. My personal experience is that there are many people involved in all aspects of this work who consider themselves to be doing noble, serious, life-saving work. I think that's true for many in the counterterrorism space. And of course, it's true for many in the humanitarian sector. And I think that it is really important that we are able to access what it is that we are trying to achieve by using international law and what it is, what we think are the commitments that most enable us to live up to the values that we think must continue to apply and be heeded even in situations of incredible deprivation and misery 
um, in the middle of a war zone. And, and that is, that's really difficult work. And that is, it's not easy to have prescriptions for those moments, but I think that's, that's the work that we are all committed to. And so I think, I think here, I just want to emphasize Dustin's point that it's not at all a position that says lawyers have nothing to contribute to this or international law can no longer do anything in this conversation. It's rather to call upon those who use law and who have expertise in law to remember that law is also imbued not just with rules and interpretations, but also with uh, political and fundamental values. Very well said. Thank you very much. So we do have the right tools. We just have to know when to use them and what our respective comparative advantages are in these situations. And that starts with a clear understanding. And of course, you know, a call to values is always, even that is contested, right? What is it? It doesn't mean once you say values, then there's no debate. That it's, we're calling for, I think, more than anything else, a open contestation of many of these issues that for too long have been behind closed doors and have been shrouded under so much technocratic and legalistic language that it would be very difficult for a non-expert to penetrate what is at stake in these debates. Excellent. Thank you. I'd like to leave it here, but I'd love to just take a moment to thank you both for your time and your energy. I cannot imagine two better fitting guests for our first episode of Humanity and War, because we chose this title because we wanted that principle of humanity to be the North Star for all of the conversations that we have in this podcast. And I think that couldn't have kicked it off better been with the two of you. So thank you so much for sharing your energy in synthesizing all of this experience into one brief conversation with us and for your time today. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Thank you so much. It's a huge honor. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. <laughs>